So, Jean Schrodel, we thank you for your work voting in Indian country. I have to tell you, in 2020, if you had told me, say 30, 40 years ago, that by now the universal suffrage would not be regarded in the United States of America as a human right, an innate right for all citizens in the United States, I would not have believed you. Your book shows that particularly what we call Native Americans, people in Indian country, as they call them, Native American voters, are deprived, and I would argue systematically deprived. Universal suffrage, what does it mean to you, Jean? Universal suffrage should mean that we all have an equal opportunity not only to cast a ballot, but to have it be a meaningful ballot in the sense, I say the latter, because there are ways that you can dilute, um, chop up um, populations to ensure that people can go to a polling place or mail in a ballot, but they actually don't have a chance to meaningfully make a difference. So, for example, on one of the reservations in Montana, the legislature divided that that reservation up and put it into eight different um, state legislative districts so all the people could vote, but they actually could not actually have any real representation in political office. So it's access to the ballot box, but also meaningful um, opportunity to express your views. There is a particular historical condition where the disadvantage has been built into the system for Native American peoples to do with the fact that they were not supposed to be citizens of the United States and therefore could not vote in the business of the United States. Could you explain that? Well, it's it's a long history, but the in the 1820, late 1820s, 1830s, the Marshall Supreme Court dis- designated that Native Americans were part of what he called domestic dependent nations, and their relationship was akin to a ward to a guardian. So they were treated in a sense like children, at least in a legal sense. They were not covered when we passed the Reconstruction Amendments. They were explicitly in the hearings about the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, that those amendments did not apply to them. The Supreme Court had a ruling in the 1880s, Elk v. Wilkins, that said under no circumstance, even if you were completely severed from your native nation, could you be considered a U.S. citizen? This changed, the citizenship question changed as we moved into the 20th century, particularly after Native Americans served in very high numbers in World War I, many individuals were given citizenship, some tribes, but the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act said that every Native American, Alaska Native American Indian, born within the borders of the United States was a citizen. But keep in mind that citizenship does not necessarily come with the right to vote, because the U.S. Constitution gives states the power to regulate times and who is allowed to vote uh, in the Constitution. 
So after the Indian Citizenship Act, states, many of them already had some of these on their books, but those that did not added in many, many laws that made it virtually impossible for American Indians within the borders of their states to vote. Some of these are the kinds of things that we're familiar with from the South, literacy tests and so on. But there were some that were unique to the indigenous nature of Native Americans. So, for example, there were laws that said that if you wanted to vote, you had to terminate yourself, which meant sever every possible relationship and then prove to a judge that you were no longer Indian in anything other than your appearance. So these were very, very harsh laws, many of which were in place still into the 1960s and in some cases into the early 1970s. The Voting Rights Act in 1965, one would have thought would have cured many of these problems, did not, because it was not viewed as applying to Native populations until 1975, roughly 10 years, actually 10 years after the passage of the Act. And the only reason it was applied at that point or changed the thinking of political leaders was the U.S. Civil Rights Commission issued a report in 1975 assessing the effect of the Voting Rights Act's first 10 years. Most of that report dealt with issues involving the South and the greater opportunities for African Americans to participate. But they also brought in a couple examples that were truly egregious from Indian country. One example, there was a man named Tom Shirley, member of the Navajo Nation. He ran for the Board of Supervisors in what's called Apache County. He got three times the votes of his white opponent, and yet the county refused to seat him, said that he was not eligible to run for political office because he was Native American. At that point, thinking about the reach of the Voting Rights Act, that it extended beyond African Americans changed. So it seems to me that the land was stolen. And then in 2020, we still deprive people of their rights. And there is something about the people we call indigenous or Native American. They are not fighting people any longer. Who are the leaders, your book shows, in the Native American community who find this unacceptable and who are most likely to get it changed? Clearly, it's not going to be changed for this election, but who will get it changed going forward? Name names. Give me some inspiration, please. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, I, I, one of the wonderful things that I did with this book, besides explaining the law and cases and history, is I had the opportunity to interview and do ethnographic interviews with some of the amazing people who are doing this work on the ground. So lawyers, I mean, a couple lawyers who are extraordinary. There's a woman named Natalie Landreth, who is from NARF, Native American Rights Fund. She works out of Alaska, but she also does cases involving other things she handled much of the litigation over Bears Ears, the National Monument. But Natalie 
just did amazing work in Alaska because Alaska, large numbers of the people, particularly in native villages, only speak their native languages, things such as Gwich'in and Yupik, which I have to admit, before I started doing this work, I'd never heard of. And they were getting all action of materials in English, even though many of them had not even had an opportunity to go to school because native villages didn't have anything beyond very early education up until the 1980s. So Natalie was a lead attorney in these cases, forcing the state of Alaska to provide material in these indigenous languages. So lawyers, incredible ones. A couple others were actually white Southern men who had been fighting civil rights, voting rights involving black people, and then discovered the same kinds of issues affecting Native Americans. So there's a man now who's very active named Brian Sells, a wonderful individual, does a great deal of voting rights cases involving not just Native Americans, but African Americans and Latinos. If you turn to the grassroots, um, I love the activists at the grassroots level. Um, there's a group out of South Dakota called Four Directions, been in existence since the early 2000s, and it's run by a couple who are getting a little older now and out of the Rosebud Sioux Reservation. And you name it, Four Directions with O.J. and Barb Siemens are right there on the ground. I know in this current election, they have been involved in voter registration. This last week, for example, I was talking to them and they had put, they had registered more than 8,000 Native Americans in Minnesota just in the last couple of weeks. And we discovered, or at least they explained to me, that they're having trouble getting local election officials to accept these registration cards. So in one of the counties, um, I think it was Friday, Thursday or Friday, they turned in 176 registration cards in this county and the people there um, rejected them and said that these were not eligible because the individuals did not live in the county. Well, they went back and they looked at it and 155 of those people were in the county. Um, and so they had to go back and then they reminded the election official that um, the state allows things to be turned into a different county and then sent to the appropriate one. And so they ended up having an argument and the county officials called the sheriff on the four directions, people who were there. So really in the trenches work going on right now. Um, if you turn to, um, to Arizona, um, four directions was involved in the case, which just got turned down by the ninth circuit court. In that case, it involved voting by mail. What probably many people do not realize is that unlike most of us, very few people on reservations have residential mail service. So they have to go for any mail service to go to a post office or a postal provider office. So that is those 
little semi-post office contract offices, say in a gas station or a mini-mart. If you look at the Navajo Nation as a whole, it is a very large territory. It is larger than the state of West Virginia, but there are only 40 places where people can either post or get mail in on the Navajo Reservation, 40. West Virginia, remember a smaller place, actually has 725. And so Four Directions was involved with, um, with members of the Navajo Nation, individuals who sued to try and get greater access to voting by mail, because it's not just the difficulty of getting to getting your mail or posting it, it turns out that um, letters that are sent from the reservation are much slower to get to election offices than those from off reservation. So this summer, I was part with them of an experiment where we sent first class certified mail, which means you have the tracking from places off off the reservation in Arizona and places on the reservation. And what we found was every one of the letters that was sent from the off reservation from the off reservation places reached the election officials within 1 to 3 days. Those from the reservation could take 6 to 10 days. What that means is it's much much harder for people on reservations to vote by mail. But the Ninth Circuit just um, last week rejected um, the argument that people on the reservation should have additional time for their ballots to reach the election offices. You seem to be suggesting, or at least it is the implication for anyone just jumping in to listen to this, that this is active voter suppression. If it is not denial of the ability to get your vote through, it certainly is a sort of obfuscation. Do you think there is any chance that the actions of the administration's postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, is there any suggestion that he is targeting Native American peoples, amongst others, it must be said. We have seen all kinds of shenanigans going on. Why would Native Americans be targeted in, say, in the Dakotas, Arizona? How much difference do they actually make? So is it voter suppression, and what is the difference if they are suppressed? Well, okay, I doubt if Louis DeJoy has ever given Native Americans any thought whatsoever. I mean, he's... I shouldn't say this because I can't look into his heart and soul, but his actions surely suggest to most people that he is trying to make it much harder for people to vote by mail. I don't know what's in his heart and soul. I can't, I can't do, I can't say that for absolute certainty, but it's certainly his actions have had that effect. But I think the thing about the Native Americans is it goes so much deeper because why, for example, are there so few post offices on the Navajo Nation? I mean, when I look at places outside of the reservation, you would be amazed. There are census-designated places. They're called CDPs, which is a designated area that will have a post office, full-service post office, 
and they have as little a population as 28 people. Yet on the Navajo reservation, in one place, there is an area that is 871 square miles, 871 square miles that does not have a single post office. This, I would argue, goes back um, to a more deeply ingrained sort of structural racism that in terms of where were post offices placed, why was that large territory ignored? Why has it not been changed at this point? That's where you get into the sort of unthinking structural racism that is carried over from the past. So that raises the question, why are some in the administration, according to what you said so far, so frightened of the Native American vote? Or is it that Native American peoples remind people like the Trump administration of the sins of what you allege is structural racism? Is is that really the problem, that by dealing in any way with representation and fair treatment of Native Americans, you're necessarily acknowledging past mistreatment? I would argue that both come into play, okay? On the one hand, there are states where the Native American vote in the past and at the contemporary period can make the difference in elections. In South Dakota, um, one of the elections where the Democrat only won by 523 votes, it was clear that the Native American vote in that case had made the difference. Um, It was interesting because um, the actual poll on the Todd Um, Todd County, which is the Rosebud Reservation, that's on Mountain Time, and yet they closed the polls an hour early, and the for directions people forced them to open it for an extra hour, and that extra hour they got about 540 additional votes, which made the difference in getting um, Senator Johnson back in 2002 elected. It's been the difference in Montana for John Tester. So there are states where the eight or nine percent of population, when we're talking Montana and South Dakota, can make the huge difference. If you go to Alaska, somewhere around 17 percent of the population are indigenous. So they're enough of a um, population, numerically enough, that they can tip states. Arizona, they're a little over I think not quite 6% of the population. So they matter in these very, very tight elections. But I think the other piece is you were mentioning about the Trump administration. And one of the stories that is in my book, which I mentioned earlier, I had ethnographic stories. One of them involved a man and his wife, who actually had a personal encounter with Donald Trump before he was a politician, that they had gone to um, one of his um, casinos, and the man had gone inside, and his wife was outside sitting on steps and was nursing their baby. And Donald and his wife at that time came up, And 
that Trump, at least according to the story I was told, called the security guards to remove the woman who was nursing the baby to get this trash out of here. So Donald Trump, at least from what I have seen, does not um, does not like Native people. I'm calling this woman trash. Um, we saw his actions, the actions of his administration uh, with respect to the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, where and then the quick approval of Keystone Pipeline. So, yeah, this is, uh, I'm just going to say it, uh, this is not a nice man. And I don't think I am out of line saying, uh, along with many other people, that his actions certainly seem to indicate that he is racist, but not simply towards Native people. Now, of course, your points about Native Americans in voting in Indian country have a much broader application because it's not just Native Americans. Marginalized groups in the United States generally are very much affected in the same way with voter suppression. Can you explain? Well, there are certain kinds of voter suppression that appear to cut across different minority populations. So the closing of polling places, the difficulties with getting registration materials accepted, some of those kinds of things appear to be pretty common. Felony disenfranchisement, which is another one, those appear to be something that applies across different population groups. But what I would argue is most of those end up with particular twists, if you will, when we move to the native population. So let me give you an example. What we've seen from research that when you close a polling place, that there is a decrease in turnout. And much of the research has come from urban areas looking at the impact of closing polling places in predominantly African-American communities. And what they found is that if you close a polling place or move it, um, where, how far people have to go, to up to a quarter of a mile, you can find a statistically significant drop in turnout. That seems to be pretty clearly established in the academic literature. But the difference is when you close polling places in native areas, the distances are exponentially larger. So, for example, the Duck Valley Reservation in, in northern Utah is right on the Idaho border. And I've been up there and talked with people. And they used to have a polling place on the reservation um, for Election Day, and it was closed. And the people now, after that, had to travel a couple hundred miles, not a quarter of a mile, but a couple hundred miles to actually cast an in-person vote. Um, right now, we are looking at a situation um, in Pima County, Arizona, where Pima County um, decided to increase the number of early voting sites. Between 2016 and 2020, they doubled the number of places that individuals could cast an early ballot in Pima County. And, Generally, we would say, yay, Pima County, very good. 
doing what, what one would want, making it easier for people to vote. But what they also did while doubling the number, they closed the only one on the Pascua Yankee reservation. So increasing access for the off-reservation population while decreasing it for the Pascua Yankee. So that is now being litigated. Um, or you move back to South Dakota. Um, my favorite example, South Dakota, keep in mind, South Dakota has probably been the hotspot for much of the conflicts around voting, but also it's the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre, the Wounded Knee Occupation in the 1970s. So it's a fraught, the, the relations are fraught there. So there's a county called Jackson County, and I have I've spent time in Jackson County, and the northern half of the county, there's a river, the northern half is virtually entirely white, off-reservation, then the southern half is the eastern portion of the Pine Ridge Reservation. They had a lawsuit, and as a settlement, the county agreed for the first time to open an early voting site on the reservation in a town called Wombly, or community called Wombly, which is actually the largest population center in the entire county. So they were forced by this lawsuit to open one there um, that already existed off reservation for the predominantly white community. COVID hits, and as probably you and all your listeners know, South Dakota has been in the forefront of keep everything open, we're not wearing masks, we're not shutting anything down. Um, the one exception, Jackson County decided because of their deep concern, the county commissioners, their deep concern for Native Americans that they had to close the early voting site in Wombly. Not the off-site, not the off-reservation site, but the one that was for the Native Americans. So those people, now if they want to cast an early in-person vote, have to, in some cases, travel up to 80 miles round trip and go to a town that has a history of racial animus, um, including things that I personally have viewed when I was in Jackson County. In 2014, I took a team of graduate students and we did surveys in different parts of Jackson County with respect to how did travel distance affect your life, your ability to buy groceries, your ability to get to church, your ability to go to school, your ability to get to work, all of this, oh, can vote. And we went to literally every community. It's, it's a small county, or numerically, the population is small. We stood in front of gas stations, post office, um, hardware store, mini mart, you name it, and did surveys, both on and off the reservation. We were invited, I might add, by members of the um, tribe there. And I have thought this was my first deep dive into this, you know, on the groundwork as opposed to looking at numbers. Um, I had expected before we went that I would feel, and my team of graduate students would feel uncomfortable um, 
on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Um, there's been a lot of tension there. Uh, I did not expect that I would feel that and my team would feel that in Kadoka, the county seat, the white part of the county. My team was mostly white, um, but I did have one um, dark, relatively dark-skinned Latino man. And while we were there, um, my Latino, the Latino man, a wonderful guy, was standing in front of the post office in Kadoka, um, the county seat, and someone drove up in a pickup truck and started shouting racial epithets at him. Uh, we also had the sheriff called to come and investigate who we were and what we were doing. So um, those are the kinds of things. And then there's the more subtle ones. I remember being in the grocery store in Kadoka, which was the only full grocery store in the entire county. And I was waiting to make a purchase. And there was a Native woman who had come to the store and she bought her groceries in front of me. And the clerk was very nice to the woman, respectful. And I was sitting there, I was standing there thinking, okay, we've seen a bunch of other ugly things. This is great. The clerk is treating her just like she's treating everyone else. And the woman left and I brought my groceries up and the clerk came out with um, derogatory racial comments about the woman who had just left. It was, it was jarring. Um, it's not that I'm naive and haven't seen racism in other parts of the United States, but most of the racism that I have seen before that was less blatant, less overt, less out there, more subtle, um, only in these kind of border towns have I seen the kind of just ugly, ugly racism um, that I hate to say it after the election of Donald Trump has become much more obvious throughout the nation. But I got my introduction to it in Jackson County. The Democrats, how different was it under two terms of President Obama? We want to believe, don't we, that it's all very much better under the Democrats. But there are systemic injustices that you've referred to, the post offices. How much amelioration was there? And if we get get a Biden administration, how much better will it be? And it seems that Native Americans are the forgotten people. How will they become the remembered and have these issues corrected? That, Claudia, that is a, that is a great question. Um, was it better on the Obama administration? Absolutely. Um, Brian Sells, who I mentioned earlier, this attorney, was head of the voting rights section for a period under the Obama administration. But it's true that the Native Americans end up being forgotten, um, probably for two reasons. One, the relatively small numbers. They're only about 2% of the population. And as you know, there are reasons why they are small now. Um, but the second is many of these really egregious abuses 
occur in rural isolated communities. Um, yeah, if somebody does something horrible in Atlanta, Georgia, or New York, or even places like Denver or Seattle, it gets noticed very rapidly. Um, if something goes on in Kadoka, nobody's ever heard of Kadoka. Um, maybe after the books gets more people read it, people know more about Kadoka. So there's some of that. Am I hopeful? Yes. Um, am I over the top hopeful? No. Call it cautiously optimistic. One of the things that happened this past um, election season, there were two events, one in Sioux City and the other in Las Vegas. They were organized by four directions that brought presidential candidates, invited all the presidential candidates to come and speak and listen, listening being important to Native Americans. The different tribes sent many people. It was very important events. This was the first time there was ever a candidate forum or candidates forum specifically focused on Native issues. And I'll be honest, most of the candidates didn't know very much. Um, I will give Elizabeth Warren a shout out. She was really on top of it. Bernie Sanders was pretty good. Um, Amy Klobuchar, but some of the others, it was not generally animosity, although I have to say Donald Trump obviously didn't come. More, they didn't know. But having come, they have now, it's there. They, it's hard for them to forget that they actually met and spoke with a lot of these people. So cautiously optimistic. I would like to push three bills if there's a new Democratic administration. One that you probably know about, which is the John Lewis um, Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would uh, repair some of the uh, language in Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act that was found unconstitutional in 2013 by the Supreme Court. Second, though, and particularly important, is the Native American Voting Rights Act, which would require um, communities, um, states, local governments to work with the tribes um, to make sure that they had registration and voting sites on the reservation to deal with some of the issues of non-traditional addressing, ballot collection, and so on. Work with the communities. Third one, though, and this one I think goes deeper in a sense that speaks to that history that we've been talking a bit about is this is the um, Remove the Stain Act. It was introduced in the Senate, I think, by Elizabeth Warren, housed by um, Deb Holland, and I think Sharice Davids. And what this act would do was it would remove the Congressional Medals of Honor that were given to 27th Cavalrymen who were involved in the Wounded Knee Massacre. I mean, this was a massacre. It was not a battle. It was the use of an early version of machine gun called Hotchkiss guns, killing predominantly women and children. And Wounded Knee got 
the people at Wounded Knee, the 7th Cavalry, were given 20 medals of honor. It was the largest number of medals of honor ever given in U.S. history. This would say in a very deep way to Native people that the rest of us are beginning to grapple and think about a racial reckoning, not simply with respect to slavery, which the 1612 Project is doing, and that's terrific, but also uh, the actions and the, the, the history and the continuing actions towards Native people. Well, Jean um, Reith Schrodel, Professor Emerita of Political Science at Claremont Graduate University. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to KGNU. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.